Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 20th, 2011, and my guest is Steve Fazari of Washington University in St. Louis. Steve, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. I'm happy to be back. Steve is a self-avowed Keynesian, a real one, not one that just finds it politically expedient. Uh, He's been a guest before, and since that time, he and I have talked some more in various places about the philosophical, methodological, economic differences between us. And uh, I thought it'd be great to have have you back on, Steve, because uh, we actually have a very uh, pleasant relationship. We don't yell at each other, which we both, I think, appreciate. Yes, very much so. And um, uh, unfortunately, somewhat rare among people who disagree about their economic theories. But I think uh, I wanted to revisit some of the things we talked about in the past and see where we are in the economy. So I thought we'd start with that. Sure. Uh, we're right about at the second anniversary of the stimulus package that was passed in February of 2008, uh, February 2009, excuse me. Right. Uh, at the time, it was, I think, 700 and something billion. Now it's, I think, agreed to be accumulated somehow to over, a little over 800, maybe 862 is the number I've heard sometimes. So give me your assessment of what its impact has been. Has it worked? Um, if not, why not? And how would we know? Okay, well, uh, first off, let me just say it's a hard question. I think you and your listeners know that this is a hard question uh, because in economics we always have this problem, what's the counterfactual? Uh, what would things look like if we had not done this? And, and that's the gold standard of being able to assess a, uh, a major policy like this, and we don't have that. So um, uh, my own sense is that it's done more or less what they said it would do in terms of the marginal effect. Remember the exact number of jobs they were talking about. Uh, of course, there is no exact in this kind of thing, but that uh, we would have, in my assessment, we would have had a much deeper recession without uh, the stimulus package. Uh, I would go as far to say as that, that we probably would not be talking about recovery at this point. Uh, I, in, in, if you put the two things together, the fiscal stimulus and the monetary actions, uh, without those things, I, I think we would have been looking at a much, much deeper uh, and more persistent uh, problem. I still think we face some, some serious problems. So in that sense, I think the stimulus has done what it was supposed to do. Well, let me, be, let me back up on that. I think the stimulus has done what, what I would have predicted it to do, but it hasn't been adequate to turn the economy around in a significant way. And I think one has a legitimate criticism of the Obama administration's way of discussing this at the time, and, and, I, and I think it is the way they thought about it when they passed this, which was this was going to be a substantial help to the economy, would turn things around. I think they thought it was the right thing to do at the time, uh, but I also think they believe that, uh, oh, within a year or so of, of that passage, the economy would be starting to, to recover fairly robustly, uh, and I bet they were pretty confident that by the 2010 midterms, um, the economy would be looking fairly bright. Uh, I, I think they were wrong at the time. Uh, the, the evidence turned out to be wrong. I don't think it's because the stimulus failed. I think it's because uh, a, a mainstream Keynesian perspective uh, underestimated the severity of the problems that we faced. Now, let me challenge you on that. That's a picky point, but I think it's so interesting methodologically. <clears throat> and that has been the, the standard defense, the one you just gave, you know, the, there were predictions made at the time that if we didn't pass the stimulus, unemployment could reach as high as 8.5%. Of course, it went over 10 And when confronted with that, the people who made those predictions, one of whom uh, is a first-rate academic economist, Christina Romer, who's working for the president in a partisan, in political role, um, you know, ex post, she said, well, the situation was worse than we thought. And of course, that's possible. Um, how would you know? What would be – what I find fascinating about these discussions is – it's like saying, well, the, you know, the chemotherapy wasn't strong enough. 
Well, sometimes you can go in, you can actually look, and you can see what, how bad it really was. Uh, sometimes you find out that you really misestimated, underestimated the severity of the problem. Here, what could possibly help us understand that other than the fact that the stimulus doesn't seem to have been as successful as was expected at the time or forecast at the time? Well, uh, it's a good question, and it's a hard question. Like, again, you know, all these, it really comes down to this issue, what is the counterfactual? Um, if I were to jump to the end of my uh, thinking of, on, on that good question, uh, I'll, I'll try to fill in some details, but I'd say at some level I think a lot of this is a matter of judgment, much more than we'd like it to be. Uh, that is, you have to look at the, the basic logic of the underlying theory. You have to look at evidence, both current and past, uh, which is going to be sketchy. Uh, and you put all this together, and there's different ways of looking at the world, and you make a judgment call. That's ultimately my view. Now, in this particular case, I think part of what happened is that, uh, well, the, <laughs> interestingly, the, the Obama administration you know, they, in some ways, they, uh, they said the unemployment rate would reach some number. I think it was, was it in the eights or nines? I without, it was eight and a half. With, without the without stimulus. It, yeah. Without the stimulus, and then uh, a lower number with the stimulus. I think seven. And then, it, you know, day. it goes up to it goes up to the low tens. And in fact, uh, I think if you look at the data, that that number is even somewhat uh, understates the severity of the problem with what's happened to the workforce and things along those lines. It, uh, it, it probably effectively. Was was higher than uh, than the low tens, so um, I suppose that's prima facie evidence that hey, things that really are worse than even what we thought was the worst case scenario, uh, and uh, when, when they were when they were making this forecast, uh, so and that I think that would be the uh, simple kind of uh, way if you look at just the unemployment rate. I also think the persistence of this uh, of this downturn, the fact that the that things turned around so slowly. Oh, for various reasons, I was going back and looking at some statements um, various people were making. I, I think I found something in uh, the spring of 2008, so this is uh, a little less than a year bef- uh, uh, before the stimulus package passed, and a, a statement by Ben Bernanke along the lines of, well, the economy might be in a recession. As we know, the recession start now started in, in late 2007, so we were in a recession. Right. But uh, by the second half of this year, that is this year being 2008, we will start to see growth resume. Well, the second half of 2008 was when we had the uh, spec- the most spectacular failures in financial since the Great Depression, and, and the economy literally fell off a cliff. So there was a lot of sense of, you know, Bernanke, is re- uh, at the time there was a Republican administration, Bernanke was appointed by the Bush administration, and he's making these, these kinds of claims. There, there was, a, I think, a, a widespread tendency uh, you know, really pretty far across the ideological spectrum in economics to underestimate the severity of what actually happened. So I, I think, find it credible. Well, I agree with that. And I just to put note on the 2008 story, of course, in the spring of 2008, uh, Bush pushed through a so-called stimulus program right. of tax rebates, not cuts in rates, but checks that uh, had a disappointing impact on um, consumer spending. But at the time, where it was you know, thought to help ameliorate the problem, and then nobody foresaw the – I shouldn't say nobody. Few people foresaw the financial catastrophes. I, I, the other footnote I would add is that I don't think the economy went off a cliff in September of 2008 or October. Uh, financial markets certainly struggled, and it certainly made it harder for economic activity to recover. Uh, I do think there's a tendency to overstate the seriousness of the situation we're in. Again, I, I don't know how we would measure it. Well, let me let, let me back off on that a little bit. Uh, maybe we we tend to use the off a cliff metaphor <laughs> a, a little too uh, easily. I'll I'll take that as a as a friendly criticism. <laughs> that said, if I if I want to try to defend the position yeah, though, that if we if we look at, at economic activity, not just financial markets, but economic activity, uh, GDP numbers as well as maybe more importantly the, the labor market. In uh, the fourth quarter of 2008, the first quarter of 2009, it was awful. Yeah, uh, I mean, we were tracking Great Depression yeah. kinds of numbers at that point. So well, we, 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 we for, uh, on, the, on the employment data, it's remarkable how closely we track them. And uh, for just not so, for such a long time, and by the spring or, or summer of 2009, we were starting to see the things were stabilizing, and we were pulling off that uh, that awful path of the Great Depression. But there was a there was a period of uh, I would put it in the approximate range, roughly six months, 
when things look very dark. So let me come back to the question I just – that got us off on this small tangent, this issue of whether – how would you know whether things were actually worse? Because right. the alternative hypothesis, of course, is that the stimulus didn't work or that it made things worse. And yes, I, right. And just right. – I just want to add to the um, to the mix, you know, us non-interventionists, we have our own areas where we wave our hands and don't have a lot of evidence. We talk a lot about – uh, expectations and how – and regime uncertainty that government regulation intervention discourages risk-taking. And while I think that's true, we don't have a theory of the magnitudes of those things. Sure. And so it's always easy to invoke those. And as some commenters have as have observed on my blog and, and maybe on podcast comments, uh, there's always uncertainty. So there's always changes in, act, right. in regulatory activity. So just finding them convenient to invoke when things are going badly – is a little bit of causation, confusing causation with correlation potentially, although I do think it matters. Uh, you can get some evidence on regulatory uncertainty. You can, you, can, you can survey people. It's not the best method. That's one method that Bob Higgs has used with data he found from World War II and the depression interventions of the Roosevelt era and how business people were alarmed by them. You don't know whether those responses are real or whether they just were strategic in how they answered. But I think you have the same problem as a Keynesian when, when you say that things were worse than we thought. There's no – what I'm trying to get at here is this metaphor of the health of the economy. Unlike the health of a body where you know pre-X-ray, pre-CAT scan, you'd have to do an autopsy to figure out whether things were worse than we thought. And at an autopsy stage, you could then actually look. And you could see that the cancer had spread more widely or the, the tissue around the heart was – you know, the arteries were more hardened. Um, we, I don't think we have anything remotely like that in, that could in, add empirical content other than the outcome which, which you invoke, which is, well, look how high unemployment went. Well, but let me go back to the, to the point that I was making, and I think in fairness you could say, look, there's a difference between the spring of 2008 and the spring of 2009 or the uh, winter of 2009 in terms of the information people had. But uh, what, I'm, what I'm invoking here as evidence that things are worse than many expected is the fact that people were making public statements about what they expected the economy to do. I take them more or less at their word. Their forecasts were honest and not strategic. And that uh, these these forecasts for for some time turned out to be grossly positive. So there was a sense of disappointed expectations, uh, and and I think it, it actually had come out of this great moderation period of macroeconomics. You know, recessions are uh, troublesome. Uh, we don't want to underestimate their their uh, social costs but they tend to be relatively mild and relatively short. And in particular, monetary policy is our uh, mechanism that can, that can mitigate the, the worst sides of the, of the business cycle. And, and I think this was the view coming in. I think it's the view that Bernanke was reflecting in the spring of 2008. Uh, it might have uh, stretched credibility a bit further by the winter of 2009 or late, or when the, the original Obama policies were being settled right after the 2008 election, uh, but I think this is what Christina Romo was, was reflecting, too, a sense that, yeah, this economy will come around on its own, but it could use some help. And, uh, and they were too optimistic. And I think the, the data show that they were too optimistic. So I think the evidence here is that things were worse than they thought, is that, is that the forecast came out uh, differently. I suppose you're saying, well, this is a bit of ex post facto reasoning. I suppose it's, uh, this argument is... Um, is subject to that criticism. Hey, so I'll try Steve, to be, you got, uh, Steve, you got to let the host do some of the work here. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were so you were so accommodating on the uncertainty point, where I yeah. thought you made a very sensible, self-aware, uh, humble comment yeah. about the perspective take, there. Take, so I thought I would I would follow your lead. I'll throw one in. Go ahead. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> that, that's basically my point. You know, people were making their forecasts, and uh, and they were. Uh, uh, you know, and, and they turned out to be wrong, and you know, really pretty badly wrong. We're not talking about missing by a little bit. Correct. You know, That's even uh, let, let's let's invoke the private sector. I think the point I could be making applies to the mainstream macroeconomic forecasting community. Absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, every everybody's too strong because there are a few, uh, you know, maybe fringe Keynesians of which I will sometimes associate myself with, who said we really were saying uh, ahead of this whole thing, look out, well, it's going to be different this time. And uh, and indeed it was. But if if you if you kind of cross the mainstream of the of the policy 
forecasting community, uh, I think there was a reasonable, reasonably tight sense that more or less corresponded to what Christina Romer was saying in uh, in January of 2009. And there's two criticisms we could make of that. I think the you know the left's criticism of that has been, well, they knew that the that the stimulus wasn't big enough, but they couldn't get it through Congress, so they settled for what they got. They put a good a good face on it, but they knew all along it wasn't going to turn out well. I don't know if that's true. It's I don't find that that uh, compelling. It's an interesting argument. Um, the other observation I'd make is that all those mainstream models are Keynesian in the sense that they anticipated some natural uh, stable relationship between government spending and out and not not just output but but employment, and those didn't happen. That there again, there are two interpretations. One is the models didn't apply to this particular time period, or the underlying economics was worse than we thought. I just uh, I think we're stuck. Uh, you know, one of the themes that listeners here are aware of is that I'm increasingly skeptical of the scientific nature of economics. This would be an example of where I don't think there are any data that would let us resolve this uh, dispute. I think it's a philosophical. I don't know. I don't know how to char- characterize it. Precisely, but I don't think if we had all the time in the world, you and I could come to an agreement on this. I suspect you're right, Russ, and, and you know, I, I have some sympathy. I don't want to go as far as to say, well, you're, you're saying you question the, the economics as a science, and I join you in that questioning without having come to a personal conclusion on, that, on the answer. Um, that to some extent, I, I, uh, my, my point earlier about judgment, I think, applies, that I think we're more in the, in the world of the historian than the... Uh, uh, you know, the physicist. scientific research. The physicist. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that 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 our you know, our approach is going to be to pull the evidence together, such as it is. Uh, there will be some quantitative evidence. There will be some qualitative evidence. Uh, there will be what people said, what uh, sur- survey kinds of things. Uh, uh, pull, pull, you know, go every every place we can look. And at the end of the day, this is not going to be definitive, and, and people are going to have to make a judgment. Uh, in much the way that that you might make the judgment about what are the forces that caused World War II, or, or what was the motivation of the Civil War, or things along those yeah. lines. Well said. Uh, so I, I go there. I, I would maybe I don't want to. You want to move on? We can do it. But there's plenty of one okay. little bit more point about the about the evidence here. Yeah. I mean, part of it is too that we you know the kind of definitive uh, one or two sentence story. This is what happened. And this this shows us which which perspective is right. I don't think we're going to have here. But there are other aspects of the basic Keynesian story that fit. For example. Uh, you know, if you, if you, you talk to a, a classically oriented economist or a neoclassically oriented economist about where basically markets are always in equilibrium, uh, we, we might measure a lot of unemployment, but it's really voluntary in some sense, et cetera, and so forth, and say, so, well, what happens when government deficits go from whatever, 2 3% of GDP up to 10% of GDP? They say, my gosh, interest rates are going to skyrocket. Well, they didn't. Uh, that's uh, and, and I, we don't want to get into the arcane uh, details of uh, of different macroeconomic models, but that is a fairly direct prediction of a Keynesian perspective when you're operating substantially below full employment. Uh, you know, inflation uh, slowed during this period of time, even though we had all this expansionary monetary policy. There are these other pieces that don't that don't directly. Maybe directly say here we can see the, uh, the 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 absolute evidence that the stimulus worked, but they do generally fall in line with uh, with the Keynesian perspective on on what's happened. Well, I'm not going to defend the the particular version of um, classical or neoclassical argument that all markets are in equilibrium all the time, and I. I'd like to come back to the issue. We're going to come back in a minute to the labor market, particularly. Okay. But I do want to, you know, of course. Uh, Monetarists, and this is again the to me the unscientific nature of economics. Um, Monetarists will have a, can explain what you just you know they'll have a story. Um, one of which is the banks are holding all their cash; they're right. anxious about the future. So that's why we haven't seen the inflation. We're going to have it, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I guess there's always going to be an issue of whether you can tell a story that fits the facts versus whether uh, it fits the facts better than another story. Right. Um, and I think that's I think that's what historians do, as you point out. Um, they tell stories and they marshal the evidence. And some stories are more convincing than others. And our understanding of history and I'd say economics moves forward and fits and starts, and sometimes doesn't move forward at all 
it's just different storytelling going on at the same time. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, you and I come down maybe down on different sides of that judgment call, but I think in terms of the the way we reach the judgment, we agree entirely. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's go back to the let's go back to the fundamentals of of stimulus and Keynesian sure. arguments. And I, Steve, uh, for your listeners out there, Steve is a, is a superb uh, principles teacher, and so I want to think of this as. Uh, uh, sort of a textbook story for a moment. We'll okay. see how much it, it goes to reality. But you know, when when we teach our students different models of macroeconomics, the Keynesian model talks about an insufficiency of aggregate demand, and that government spending can fix that uh, under certain circumstances. Certainly through borrowing money and by spending it. And I want to get at the underlying. You know, I've posted it. Cafe Hayek, a lot of posts on my puzzlement over this. And, and yeah, I, mean, I, did, I did happen to look at what you, what you said the other day, so that was helpful. So when I say puzzlement, I don't mean like this doesn't make sense to me, but rather I'm just trying to figure out – I'm skeptical about it. So I want to try to get at where my skepticism maybe has some traction and where it's just I'm misinformed or misunderstanding it. So the, tell me what the argument is for why the stimulus should have worked. Again, forget whether it actually did, whether we can measure it. Let's put that to the side. Let's talk about the logic of it. Okay, good. Uh, so, in some respects, I'm going to I'm going to go to some of the topics you just mentioned in, in introducing this question, uh, the issue of demand or aggregate demand, and it, it somewhat doesn't really matter whether the demand comes from the public sector or the private sector. So, you know, that, uh, I, I often have a discussion with people, often who are some, somewhat conservative ideologically, but they've run businesses and. Uh, Say that well, you sell more when when there are more customers coming through the door, and, and of course everybody says yes. Of course that's true. Uh, there's there's not even a doubt, and I don't want to make too much of a straw man out of this. That any sensible economic model is going to say that you only produce what you can sell. Uh, so you start from that intuition, though, that that the number of people walking through the door to to uh, put their money on the counter to buy your goods and services is an important factor in deciding how much you'll produce and how many workers you'll hire. Uh, well, uh, the, the, the maybe more controversial point is that there are times when uh, if you just look at the private sector by itself uh, or you hold government constant, let's be a little more realistic, you hold government constant uh, and demand, the, the willingness to, to, to lay money down on the counter falters uh, from the private sector that there is just an insufficiency of demand broadly spread throughout the economy, that uh, uh, without some outside force intervening either to gin up private sector demand or to directly create demand in the form of something like government spending, uh, that there, business will simply not be able to sell enough output to, uh, to fully employ the labor force. So uh, I think at the most basic principles level, that's the... That's the simple intuition of Keynesian macroeconomics. So let's talk about some different forms of stimulus under that, um, taking that structure as, as correct. So I always think of, of various ways we could increase spending. And I, and I just – I think it's important to mention – I don't know whether, whether this bothers you or not, Steve. It, it bothers me when people confuse uh, spending and income – spending and nominal – nominal terms or income in nominal terms with well-being, not just because money isn't all we care about, which is true. It isn't all we care about, but also because we care about what our spending and access to goods and services actually is, not the dollar values attached to it. So it's easy to increase total spending in the economy by printing money, by – so let's think of some different st- things that would increase aggregate demand. I, th- I think correctly – correct me if I'm wrong – within a Keynesian framework. So here's, here are the experiments I have in mind, and it's going to be a little bit – maybe t- too many at once, so we may want to break this up. But I think I'm going to take some notes. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm thinking about the following. So case number one is we just print money and give it to people, mm-hmm. and they find themselves holding more money than they expected, uh, and they go out and spend it. Case number two would be the government uh, – creates a project that has real economic value. Uh, it builds a road that serves an area that is underserved right now, and so it's it's a productive use of, of resources. The third would be uh, it pays people to dig ditches and holes and fill them back in, uh, which, which is a somewhat satirical but somewhat actual example that Keynes used. And those three all increase aggregate demand 
it, they all strike they strike me as as very different though are they different uh i yes i think they are different um so uh let me be be clear i think the one, hiring one group of people to dig a hole and another group of people to fill them back up again is one of the great uh, red herrings of these debates in the past. Uh, I, I will start our discussion on this topic by saying I am not in favor <laughs> of such fiscal policy. I heard and, Joe Stiglitz say, in, say live that he, even though that was not the best use of government money, it would still improve the economy. So, well, and, and so I, I, I think I'm inclined to say that that's, uh, at least from a debating point of view, not a good issue to even engage on. Smart. Go ahead. So, so let's, uh, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about number one and number two. Maybe we'll start with number two. So this is the increase of in government spending that produces a project of value. So let me argue that there's, two, there's really two things that come from that. One, we don't have to talk about Keynes or even macroeconomics. We talk about public economics. We talk about basically a, what in the profession is a microeconomic topic which is a effectively cost-benefit analysis and says, right. well, there are some things that the government is better to do than others. And right. we, we could have substantial differences on, on the details of whether this project or that project meets that criteria. We probably would not disagree very much about the basic framework for making the evaluation. Uh, so that's one thing, and it could be, and ma- many on the left in particular argue, that uh, a microeconomic argument in these, in these things that... that uh, we are underinvested in infrastructure right. and education and green technology, and that they may not make the argument this way, but, uh, but if I'm trying to kind of clarify the underlying logic, yeah. I would say recession or not, it would be useful for the government to engage in this or not, and that's the debate that one could have. Right, but, it's, but, it, but the argument's often presented as it's a, it's a twofer, yeah. right? You get, right? You get a, a beneficial outcome like a green technology or a, a road you didn't you – didn't, wouldn't have, built, wouldn't have been built privately, but produces net benefits, and you stimulate the economy. Yes, and so the, it's that second part, that stimulate the economy part. And, and here I go back to the, my simple intuition of uh, behind Keynesian economics, uh, that if more people are coming through the door, if more people are willing to put their money down on the counter to buy the goods, that business will produce more and, and hire more people. Uh, there's no reason that the demand has to come from the private sector. Uh, the, the government building a, a road, which hopefully is of, of social value, uh, independent of the uh, uh, of the state of the economy, if it if it turns out that private de- sector demand is insufficient, and that we have involuntarily unemployed resources, then uh, you know the government's money is good is is as good as anybody's money, and a uh, construction company uh, will be motivated to. Uh, to employ those unemployed resources just as well from the government project as it would from a from a private uh, infrastructure project. So, uh, so. But then that wouldn't be any different than case number one, right? Because the gover- in case number one, which for those of you not taking notes at home, the case where we just print money and give it to people, right. uh, they're going to show up at those stores. They're going to be asking for more goods, and shouldn't that be actually? Shouldn't, I shouldn't. I, I, shouldn't I, I, <laughs> Shouldn't Zimbabwe have a booming economy? Okay. Sorry, cheap shot. Uh, that, cheap was a, shot that, was a, that was a, a nice rhetorical uh, 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 jump there, <laughs> flourish, but to go to Zimbabwe, maybe we'll hold on, I'll hold off on that one for a moment. But, but let me broadly agree with you. There is an allocational difference. Uh, well, let me take the basic point. So uh, I'm basically saying demand is demand in some sense. If the government stimulates demand through an infrastructure project, uh, that's helpful in bringing unemployed resources into use. If the government stimulates demand by putting more money in people's pockets and they, and they will take that money to the stores and spend it, that's also stimulus in the same sense. Uh, and so has that, the Keynesian part of that, uh, as a first, at least of the first order, is, is similar. Uh, there is an, um, what I was going to say is there's an allocational difference. Uh, and, and I think this is actually an important issue and one that's, that's much understated or more, more largely ignored in these discussions. Uh, allocation matters. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm strongly of the view that the economy needs, needed in the past couple of years and still needs more demand stimulus. Uh, I don't have a strong opinion on whether that demand stimulus should be money in people's pockets that lets them, on, a, on their personal, uh, decentralized individual preferences, decide how that money will be spent and so which businesses, which kinds of activities will be stimulated versus a government allocation policy where it's a bureaucratic process that decides that. And, not, and in saying that, when I say bureaucratic, I, I suppose, especially for your listeners, that sounds like a, 
a nasty word. I don't mean to imply that. It just is what it is. It's a political reality. A political, a yeah. political process that will decide how the, how the allocation goes. So in the broad sense, in terms of Keynesian stimulus, whether you print money and put it in people's pockets or whether you have government infrastructure programs, you know, as a first-order effect, the stimulus qualitatively is the same. You can argue, well, one's more effective than the other. We have other, you know, longer, different dynamics to these things. Again, the, the kind of twofer argument that people on the left would make is that we need more government activity, and since we have unemployed resources, this is a particularly good time to to create these new public goods that were, where there's been a deficiency for years. So, you know, there's all, there's all sorts of nuance, and I don't want to suggest that those nuances aren't important, but if we're talking Keynesian stimulus, I'm on board with your point that, that number one and number two are moving in the same direction. So here's the question then about – let's now talk a little bit about the practical aspects of the 800 or so billion that we're, that's been – by the way, of course, it all hasn't been spent, I don't think, yet. So it's a little bit uh, interesting. Another aspect of expo storytelling is that – People have said, and I th- and I think it's correct, that the stimulus was poorly designed, even from a Keynesian perspective. Uh, and what it was spent on uh, was not particularly uh, useful. So let me let me talk in terms of stimulating. Forget the political side of it. So right. l- l- let me mention what I what I worry about there, which is about a quarter of the lost jobs from December of two thousand and seven were in um, uh, have been in construction. And in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of jobs. There's a lot of carpenters out of work. There are a lot of uh, tool and die people out of work. And as a result of that, I'm actually, I may have, I may have that wrong. It may be half. I, I'm, I, I'll correct this in the notes. I, I don't know the date either. I'm I've forgotten. I've checked it. I've, I've got, I'm now I'm confused because it's both sectors combined I'm trying to talk about. But, but hundreds of thousands of jobs uh, have been, and maybe more than a million have been lost. In, in those two sectors alone, and there's a lot of people who have – employment is way down. Now, the reason it's down for lots of reasons, part of it being obvious that when you build way too many houses as part of the thing that kicked the problem off, uh, you're going to find it, the demand for building new houses. And we just had the recent data on housing starts. They're crummy. They're, they're horrifically yeah. bad. So obviously if you're a carpenter, it's, uh, it's going to be a long time between jobs unless you're lucky to be one of the ones who still – Who's still working? Um, manufacturing. We've got the combination. We have a combination of effects. It's part of a of a long term trend uh, that started in 1950. That's accelerated in the last decade away from manufacturing. Partly, I think, because of tariffs that we've put on steel. Partly, maybe because of increases in productivity. Finally, computerization is playing a major role in reducing labor costs and labor requirements. So employment's fallen dramatically. And so, in both cases, you have people who are sitting around thinking, "Should I go back to work?" With the skill that I have, which is, say, carpentry or being a, a, a tool and die operator in a manufacturing plant, or should I try to retool, take a lower-paying job, and suffer with what I've got? And the stimulus itself, the 800-so billion, most of it didn't go to create jobs for carpenters or manufacturers, just to take two examples. Uh, a lot of it went to the states to continue paying unemployment benefits, which was a nice thing if you were unemployed. Uh, it went to keep teachers and other state employees from being fired, which is – or taking pay cuts even, which uh, obviously is politically attractive. Uh, a lot of it went to say – I know that Washington University in St. Louis got some nice funds to increase medical research. But those aren't going to get to the folks who are unemployed. So what's you – know, the way Arnold Kling talks about this, I think, very effectively at EconLog is there isn't a – factory that produces GDP, we have this very diverse economy, and if there are certain sectors that are hurt, they're not going to be helped by much by spending in, other, in the other sectors. The other example I'll give, and then I'll shut up, sorry for the long question, is geographic unemployment. Uh, unemployment is very high. Metropolitan, I just saw a chart on it. Metropolitan unemployment is very high in urban areas that had uh, the housing boom and bust. So California, Florida, Nevada, Arizona, Michigan all have above-average unemployment. Other areas have below-average unemployment, and yet the spending, I think, went out in all kinds of different ways all over the country, uh, most of it political, as you say. Isn't it wrong to just think about aggregate demand by itself as the problem, the an insufficiency of aggregate demand? You know, again, largely I agree. Uh, I, I think we I, we should talk about this a bit, and I, I think there's there's a, some additional flexibilities in the economy that can be uh, for, by which the stimulus can be more effective than than your last few minutes of comments 
might suggest. But at a first at the first level, uh, should would it, would it be better for stimulus, uh, Keynesian Keynesian design stimulus, which is basically trying to raise demand uh, and, and seeing that as the basic problem, to be targeted to those occupations or even those regions uh, that are most hard hit? And I would say yes. Uh, I think that would be better in terms of the detailed design. Um, you can imagine uh, political problems. Uh, you know, if you just said, well, you know, it's California, Florida, Arizona, that we really need to, Nevada, that we really need to help because that's where the, the problem is the worst. Uh, from a you know, kind of a narrow Keynesian point of view, uh, I would probably say that's probably true. Uh, uh, politically, that's going to be a tough b- distributional <laughs> consequences that are serious. And 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 you know, let's not uh, let's give due to the kind of moral hazard issue, which is uh, that that the, you know, this is where people were the craziest, and now we're actually rewarding them after the fact. Not I mean, rewarding might be a little strange because I think people generally, you know, if you the objective is really to employ these people, they're not it's not a happy outcome. But nonetheless, uh, we we know that's a bit of an issue. So there's a, there's clearly practical problems, but it's a but. Uh, I think conceptually, uh, if, you, if one buy, buys into the, to the uh, basic Keynesian argument, when we think of the economy as just producing a homogeneous uh, good, which I tell my students, I call it stuff, yeah. you know, GDP, like you say, the GDP factor, of course, that's not realistic, and we, sh- and we should go that direction. So, um, so I, I accept the point that, uh, that, uh, that there is allocational aspect. But, then, uh, but this said, now let's, let's go a little bit further. That uh, I, I said this sounds vaguely familiar. I think our last podcast may have touched on this issue too, which is that here I'm going to be the you know the kind of the man of the left and the and the Keynesian who who's going to argue for there's flexibility in the economy after all. You know we don't have uh, to use a technical term Leontief technologies where there's just a fixed number of people at every place. There's you know there's substitution that goes on. There's things that go along those lines. If if a uh, government stimulus project is building new highways that otherwise wouldn't be built. Uh, my guess is that many construction workers could find jobs there. Uh, or maybe their skills are not, are not a, um, if they're really good at putting up rafters and, and building houses, they, they may not be able to make as much money in the, in the, as the uh, lowest person in the totem pole in the construction, the highway construction firm. But, but there's certainly the possibility, that, and I would think likelihood, that people will move in those directions. You, you, know, you mentioned, say, research funding coming to Washington University, uh, which, which is a good thing, but possibly, right? Yeah, I, I mean, would, it's a good. Again, this is kind of this public good issue we can get into and in developing these new technologies. We might enhance economic growth or other kinds of things like medical research. Uh, and you say, well, but wait a second, there aren't too many, you know, PhD scientists who are losing their jobs because of the problems in the construction true. industry. So what's the point? But, but you know, there's there's other things that go along with that. That. The PhD scientists need staff and and uh, and uh, help for uh, uh, to take care of the infrastructure of the building and True. and uh, may, may need to build new lab space, which is construction and and so that there's this kind of spillovers from these other areas, even if the stimulus is not targeted perfectly, uh, that where it could still ultimately be helpful. So you do get a little bit into this the. Uh, the best being the enemy of the good in this kind of a debate. And, and it's, it's an interesting empirical question. This is one area where I think we can actually get some information, uh, not directly right this minute, but in, in theory we can. And I'm hoping to have a podcast on this in the next month or two. Uh, we can actually look. You know, When people say, oh, these, you know, this project was funded by the stimulus, look how many jobs were created. Of course, the key question is how many net jobs were created. Yes, I agree. If those people were already working, already employed, or came from an a different industry, but where they were already employed, and we can also see how much flexibility there is to some extent. We can see if carpenters are working uh, in those projects. My guess is no, but that's my bias, so I'm willing to be agnostic. But, but let me on just that. Inter- interrupt here for a second because it's not—it's it's actually harder than that. I mean, I agree. I think that would be interesting research. But suppose that. Uh, oh, I don't know. Let me just use the Washington University example. We build a new research lab, and you know, you hire a. Uh, an administrative person who who was previously employed in a legal office, and uh, and so you say, well, that's not a net job created, but now there's an opening in the Correct. legal office. That's right. And yep. so that's who knows right. what happens there? And you know, and I think this really does get at the heart of, of what we talked about early in the podcast when you're saying how hard it is, and we agree about this, to yep. really know what's going on. I mean, who? How do you know if you're running a restaurant? That the, your customers coming in have a job because of a government stimulus program. There's just no way to know that. And you certainly don't care, as you point out. Yeah. Uh, that's irrelevant to you, unless you find it. You know, if you expand your restaurant 
and the stimulus uh, ends or the whatever program it is ends, uh, and let's say it's the first example of printing money, uh, you you may you will find that 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 was not a real change or it was a temporary change, and you've overinvested and you've got a problem. Um, that's the that's the you know Milton Friedman argument about nominal changes from money supply creation can have short run effect, but in the long run are unlikely to be sustained. But certainly a business person has trouble figuring out where the source of the demand for demand's coming from, and to some extent shouldn't worry about it too much uh, unless it turns out to be purely nominal, in which case they'll have – Yeah, and ultimately unsustainable. Right, correct. So let's turn – only thing I want to add to this discussion about aggregation and the GDP factor is that I think one issue that just doesn't get talked about much is that if in fact you are stimulating sectors that are – where there's full employment, where resources are fully engaged, whether it's lumber for the – some building industry or steel for that new lab you're building or PhD researchers, by pushing up the demand for those things, the effect isn't on quantities but on prices. And I, I, implicit in the GDP factory story is that there's this slack that the increase in demand soaks up and and therefore pushes people back into the into the labor force. If you're pushing the resources into areas that, where there isn't slack, you're going to have price effects that are going to um, be seen rather than quantity effects. Yeah, and, you know, and I agree with that. Uh, for, first off, let me be clear uh, that the Keynesian stimulus uh, argument, the logic of it, requires that there be underemployed resources uh, in, in some general sense. And this, this uh, your, your listeners may or may not know, is why Keynes entitled his book The General Theory, because he argued that should you have enough demand to, to basically get the economy to full employment, that the novel aspects of his analysis no longer applied. So, so unemployed resources are critical. If you break this down to the sectoral level, I agree that you could, you could certainly have price effects. Now, those price effects may actually not just simply be a rise in price and supply is completely inelastic. This could, it could imply, let's do some oh, expansion, which then could That's draw correct. unemployed resources from other parts of the eco- economy. But this gets all pretty complicated. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, let's turn to the labor market in particular, although we're kind of dancing around it right now. But let's look a little more uh, focus on it. One of the things that mystifies me is that it, when we, you know, you earlier said that there's this you know, classical view or classical view that all unemployment's voluntary, all markets clear. And I think certainly the Austrian part of me would say that's not true. Uh, and, and the neoclassical part of me would say, well, there's imperfect information and uh, people may not know of the opportunities. The example I've I think I've used on the program before is the – I'll use the carpenter this time like I just did. As I just did, the carpenter is unemployed. For all he knows, the demand for housing may come back in three months or six months, but it might be 10 years, right. uh, in which case he should probably look elsewhere. Uh, you don't know – you can't foresee the future perfectly. Uh, an expert can't. Certainly a carpenter doesn't know what's going to happen to his his business. And so there is a, a difficult decision we made. I don't want to – debate about whether that's voluntary or involuntary. I think it's it's not ideal. Let's leave it at that. Sure. Obviously, change of all kinds puts people in situations where they're unclear about what the best move to make is, and that's part of the reason people are unemployed. And the part of the other another reason they're unemployed is they don't know about every single opportunity out there every, every minute. They don't know that there's a job uh, two states away or maybe across town. Um, there's all kinds of imperfections in those markets. But let's, let's put that to the side, this, a debate about the what we call it, the, it's certainly true that uh, – and I use the example from the tech world because it's so obvious. In 1999, if you were a, a internet person, you were a skilled computer person and your firm shut down, didn't make it. It was a startup. It didn't make it. You were a little bit upset perhaps. You'd be disappointed. But you'd find a new job pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, in 2001, when the tech bubble collapsed, that wasn't true, right. but it didn't last very long. Those skilled people found jobs. Today, we're in that 2001 world for a whole bunch of people, and it's hard to understand what's why it's working for some folks. So, for example, if you have a college education, I think unemployment's about 5%, but if you don't have a college education, it's about 15 Yeah. So. Do we have any idea I'm, – I'm thinking out loud here. I'm not pressing you as a Keynesian. We don't really understand those differences very well, I don't think. Yeah, it's, uh, I agree. It's, it's, a, it's something that we need to pay more attention to. I, I think you're going to find I, – I haven't looked at this recently. I've, I've certainly seen the data that unemployment is up 
pretty substantially, even for college educated it is. people. It is. It's increased across the board. What's interesting is, is the. Uh, I think the gap has widened, but not so much. It's mainly just yeah. it just isn't that much hardship for a college educated person. And my guess is, it depends what you majored in and what your skill set is. Um, even within that college educated group, I'm sure there are a lot of people. If they lost their job, they'd find another one pretty quickly. Right now, in the middle of a horrible recession, even though we have a recovery, the, the labor market side of it's terrible. Uh, employment growth is anemic. Uh, but it's not a bad time to lose a job for some types of people. But for others, it's a very, very bad time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Actually, this is a bit of an aside, but uh, you know, it's, as a professor, I talk to my undergraduate students and they move through here. The four years goes by very quickly. They're looking for jobs, right. especially in these last couple of years. It, it can be a little bit of a downer conversation. And, and one of the facts I, I point out, which is, is broadly relevant to the point you make, is that this actually should be somewhat encouraging. Is if you actually look at the you know, underlying uh, dynamics of the labor market, there are a lot of jobs, even in the worst of a recession, there are a lot of job, jobs created every month. That what we you know what we see is the monthly employment port report on the on the first Friday of the month for the previous month is, is the is the difference between That's the jobs net. created and the jobs lost. And and uh, in a recession, the jobs lost uh, dominate the jobs created. But if you look at the absolute numbers, there are a lot of jobs created every month. And even in good times, I guess you do the symmetric thing. There are a lot of jobs lost every Correct. month. Yeah. So it, that, that's, I mean, one of the things I find fascinating about this, and, and, and the challenges of macroeconomics generally is, you know, we tend to think of the economy as as this sort of again organic creature, like a person's health. We say the economy is healthy; it's not right, healthy. Right. And as you point out, and this is the data that I think you're thinking about. That certainly the stuff that it reminds me of is the JOLTS data, J O L T S, which is a, a nice project where the government actually collects not net job changes, but the actual. St- Creation and destruction. So jobs are created when existing firms expand or new firms come into being, and jobs are destroyed when firms contract or disappear. And as you point out, in the in a quarter, in any one quarter, whether it's good times or bad times, millions of jobs are created and millions of jobs are destroyed. The difference is, is in what we call healthy times, which would be 2005, 1994, uh, 1987 – 86, all the non-recession times, the number of jobs created is bigger than the number of jobs destroyed by a few hundred thousand in a good month or a little more than that if it's a really booming month or a little less than that if it's a little slow month. But in a recession, all of a sudden, those numbers are a little bit different. And as a result, all of a sudden, there's more jobs that are being destroyed than created, and it's harder to find one. Um, And in particular, last month, the job report was net job creation of 103,000, which is not very good. Or not very cheerful when right. unemployment is as large as it is, and it just—I think it's fascinating that we don't really understand that very well. Yeah, obviously, the, the kind of, in some respects, I don't know if it's fair to call this the microeconomic dynamic because I'm not really sure that's entirely true. I think there's a, these, you know, these various, various very complex forces, but the, but we need to get under the hood a little bit more and see see how this process is working. And, and there is interesting research along those lines. Uh, I think of Olivier Blanchard and, and also Peter Diamond, who won the Nobel Prize this last year. But Diamond won the prize. And, but for uh, the particular paper I'm thinking of is, is the Blanchard-Diamond paper. It's a Brookings paper from some years ago. Uh, the, the, these researchers have tried to do these kinds of things, but uh, I think this stuff has, has stayed fairly arcane and outside of the public policy discussion. And, you know, again, to think of another natural experiment that, that is again, to me, sort of just puzzling. Uh, I think about the return of of American soldiers after World War II. We have this massive inflow yes. uh, of, of labor. And similarly, uh, between, say, in the 60s and 70s, a huge increase in the number of women, particularly with children, who've decided that they want to work rather than stay at home. And they pretty much all find jobs. The unemployment rate doesn't go to 30% or 20% or 15 ever. Um, in those times, it just the economy creates jobs uh, in a strange, organic, un, not quite understood fashion, and all of a sudden, it's not doing it. Yes, actually, I, I don't, uh, this, this may be extending beyond the, the current economic uh, environment here a bit, but uh, your listeners might be interested that, uh, for, for me, I think one of the puzzles that, that Keynesian economists have to face is the following: that you know, I can uh, go through with my students. Uh, fairly detailed discussion of why demand may not be adequate to get us to, to full employment at any point in time and uh, uh, the, the problems associated with that. 
but then one has to confront the fact, so that in a sense demand is not automatic. I guess that would be the, the bottom line message of this analysis, that uh, we can't rely on it to, to be sufficient uh, uh, really at any point in time necessarily to, to get us to full employment. But you look over the long sweep of economic history in the U.S. and you see employment growing, production growing. I have thought exactly about the examples you've talked about, the, the large uh, the influx of um, women in the labor force with rising female labor force participation at the same time, uh, we're uh, I think roughly the same age, our baby boom generation uh, coming into the labor force and yep. not seeing, you know, there have been there were some ups and downs, there was some discussion about why these factors might have led to a somewhat higher long-run average unemployment rate in the 1970s and 1980s and in other periods, but, but you know, in, in retrospect, those fluctuations look pretty small. Um, one has to address that. Where does the demand come from? Where's the growth of the demand? If I'm, if I'm saying demand's not automatic, there has to be an economic process or some kind of process which is generating over longer sweeps of time the demand growth that seems to be following up this, uh, this, this, this resource, at least in a society that's functioning well, as, as ours has over the long sweep of history that we're talking about has. And I think it's a, a fascinating question. I must say I am doing some research on it, but I, it's not quite ready for, uh, uh, for the public yet. Well, maybe we'll talk some more about that, but I, I think when it's done, but I, I think the, that fundamental question, which, uh, you know, in quote, good times, whatever that means, uh, people find through the division of labor, through competition, through the emergent complex phenomenon called an economy, people find ways to use their skills that people value. And in turn, uh, people pay for those and they're swapping goods with each other for certain services with each other. And it all works pretty well. And then every once in a while, it doesn't. Um, and why a carpenter right now is struggling to find work when – a computer program in 1999 doesn't is uh, is a little bit hard to – we don't fully understand the process, all I'm going to say. And I, it's fascinating uh, and, and tragic, obviously, for people who are trying to figure out what to do and who don't see any opportunities that, that they find attractive. Yeah, no doubt. Um, we're almost out of time. Let, let's turn to the question of economics as a profession. Okay. And I find it – so this is a little bit off the track, but comes back to some things we did talk about a little bit earlier. First question, do you think this crisis is going to change uh, either macroeconomics or how we teach it in the at the textbook level? And if so, how would you guess? Well, that's a that's a good question and one that's a reasonable one for somebody who sits where I am. It's a hard one. Uh, I mean, macroeconomics has – it has changed a fair amount in the past 30 years uh, in, in various respects. Um, I, I think I, I have to say the answer is yes. Uh, it, it will change it. Uh, how is a little bit harder to say. One thing I would think is, is much more emphasis on, on financial instability of various kinds. Uh, exactly how that comes through, it's not entirely clear. More emphasis, say, on moral hazard issues in financial markets, uh, possibly a kind of bounded rationality, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the modern finance models, which then spill over to macroeconomics, uh, you know, based on this rational expectations type of assumption, which is that, uh, that people basically know everything there is to be known about the about the distribution of outcomes, uh, and so any anything is is the result of a so-called shock, something that that was fully unanticipated. Uh, I, I just had the interesting experience of of reading the book, The Big Short. I don't know if we use the podcast for advertising somebody else's books, but That's but okay. <laughs> but you know, you, you look at this and you see, you know, it really is pretty interesting the kind of groupthink in uh, in financial markets. That that uh, the book is more about the, the pariahs who went against the groupthink, but the the, the the there was a sense of people kind of convincing themselves that they must be right because they thought the same way as everybody else. And uh, I, I think we, we might we might see a, a broader perspective on how expectations are formed, how people are dealing with uncertainty working their way into macroeconomic models than otherwise. I mean, in many ways, uh, from my Keynesian perspective, it's a, hey, look, the, this has been a pretty, uh, some pretty good years for Keynesians. There's some, some strong pushback in the in mainstream macroeconomic profession against uh, a resurgence of Keynesian ideas. But you know, that's been going on for 30 years. In some respects, I think the, the fact that the debate has gotten much more intense in this period is because, the, at least on the surface, uh, some of the Keynesian stuff looks uh, more um, more plausible and i'm wondering i'm wondering somewhat expecting 
that uh, the younger people, especially at top research universities, are going to start think, uh, moving uh, more back in that direction, and, and we might see uh, a rise in the in the co- in the copies of the general theory sold. <laughs> I know a little bit more directly about that. My for I guess our former colleague here at Washington University, Hyman Minsky, sure, uh, who was talking a, a lot about financial instability based on a, on a largely Keynesian framework. You know, his work has certainly become much more. Uh, uh, popular and his book is back in print. His, his, his final book, Stabilizing an Unstable Economy, is back in print after maybe 20 years out of print. And so, it, clearly, the interest is rising. Uh, you asked more about the economics profession rather than the, the, the broader society, but I think there's some reflection of that. So, I, I would see that. I think there will be more interest in these issues, and I, and I hope there will be. And, and I hope we really see, see progress. Yeah, my comment on the group think point is that. Past bailouts uh, reduced the incentive to be thoughtful, unfortunately, and I think that's – I agree that there was definitely groupthink, but it was um, – it was – the costs of that groupthink were – the people who had it were insulated by um, past decisions to, antici- to to be less prudent in the, at the time. And they also didn't – those people didn't pay much of a price for the groupthink. Um, a lot of them made a great deal of money, so that there's something wrong with financial markets either inherently or – my claim is that it's uh, bad policy, but that's inducing that. But that's it's an interesting it's an interesting point. I, I agree with you very much that I think there's going to be an attempt to mingle finance and macro much more closely. What's fascinating to me about this mess is that most of the macroeconomists that I know don't know much finance, and most of the financial people I know don't know much macro. And part of that's specialization, divisional labor results that how we get rewarded in our profession for being specialists. And it just shocks me how little those two groups talk to each other. Of course, there are people who do a little of both. But in general, um, I think microeconomists were blindsided, to use another Michael Lewis phrase, uh, were blindsided by the role of the financial sector. We haven't had a financial crisis in our lifetime. Uh, Yes, they understood about the role of – of the banks in the Great Depression, but um, the shadow banking system and the role of leverage uh, and how that worked its way through housing, a particular sector of housing that's a very tiny part of the housing market subprime, I think caught most economists, mainstream economists, totally by surprise. Yeah, it didn't catch everyone by surprise, but but I agree. I think it, it, it just was not where we, where people were looking to find the the issues with, that they thought were of first order importance in generating macroeconomic fluctuations. And I, I think that almost certainly is going to change. Uh, I don't know exactly what form the, the new models will take and the new explanations will take, but I, I, I've got to believe people are going to be paying much more attention to, to these kinds of things. And I, I don't know how much more time we have, but I kind of go back to this some of our, our points about uh, how do you really know things in economics and things along these lines. I also, I, I don't know if this will change. I suspect it probably won't, but I kind of wish it would. Which is a sense to view, you know, current conditions as uh, as indicative of how the world always was and always will be. Uh, and by current, I might not not just necessarily this year, but I'm thinking that I, and there was a whole generation of of uh, macroeconomists that grew up in the uh, you know, mid '80s yeah. uh, to, to to 2007, the Great Moderation Period. And, that would include and, us. <laughs> and, and that would include us, in which monetary policy was seemed to be very effective at stabilizing the economy, and then and they start to think, well, this is the way it always is, and and just and just didn't pay much attention to some of these other kinds of issues. And I, I think we're you know that. The, the relevant data of macroeconomics are sometimes these decade, multi-decade long periods when there's a, a fairly idiosyncratic set of factors working um, that uh, that may not that may not last forever. And uh, and we've I think been often you know, been blindsided in using that phrase again by those changes. I mean, not everyone, but I Minsky mean, is a, a, is a major ex- exception in this, in this particular case. But but it, there, it, I'm going back a little bit to my groupthink type of type of um, mm-hmm. um, explanation. Yeah, and I think that's true. I think a lot of smart people uh, forgot how complicated the world is. Right. And um, it's, it's certainly been a, a wake-up call for me, and I, I assume for you too. It's been a fast it, – it's, you know, it's, it's sad that in a time of such uh, economic hardship for so many people, 
uh, it's an incredibly interesting time to be an economist. It's really true. I mean, I have to say, I, I've not I've not been more intellectually stimulated at any point in my now a career here at Washington University, which is is approaching thirty years. Uh, it, it's in, incredibly engaging, sometimes too engaging. It makes me tired, uh, but uh, but it, it is really really an interesting time. I've used the uh, uh, little story or analogy elsewhere to say, you know, if you study tornadoes, you don't really want to see anybody's farm get busted up, but if it's going to happen, you kind of want to watch, yeah. and uh, and that's where I feel like I am right now. My guest today has been Steve Fazari. Steve, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Always good to talk with you, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.